You are listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javet, a podcast that presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. Here is your host. In this podcast, we cover everything from churches and church planting efforts, mission and missions organization evangelism, and unreached people groups, emerging movements and initiatives, justice, current events related to faith, and the persecuted church, to author interviews, and more. Let's get to it. Welcome back to the show. Today we have with us uh, Bobby Jamison, a pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church and the author of a number of books. Bobby, please introduce yourself to us and tell us a little about your family. I love talking about family because uh, that makes us human. That talks, uh, that tells us uh, uh, tells our audience who we are before we talk about who, what we do, right? Sure. So please. Yeah, sure. So um, I am married to Kristen. We both grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. We have been married for 14 years. Uh, we have four children, uh, a girl, a girl, a boy, and a girl, uh, ages 12 down to three. And we um, have been living here in D.C. now for about four and a half years, where I'm an associate pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. That's so awesome. Um, I was uh, looking over your bio, and uh, that's so cool that you have uh, a doctorate in uh, New Testament, and you taught Greek. I love Greek, man. That's the I, I lived in Greece. I went to Bible college there. That's where my uh, excellent Bible education started, actually. So excellent. I have, yeah, man. That's so cool. So uh, why Greek? You know, I um, I started studying Greek when I was an undergraduate, and I was just starting to think seriously about going into ministry. I knew the New Testament was written in Greek. I thought, well, maybe I can get a head start. So I started classical Greek, and I just fell in love. Um, I fell in love with the language. You know, I, I was a musician at that point. My whole early years, I was intent on being a professional musician. And I think there's kind of a natural switch from music to language, grammar, vocabulary, memorization, hearing things, the sound of it. So I don't know, for some reason, Greek just clicked. And of course, it, it helped me dive deeper into the New Testament as well. So I'm at least a kind of a small scale Greek geek uh, in terms of <laughs> New, New Testament and classical Greek. I have friends who are much bigger, better Greek geeks, but I'm at least an amateur Greek geek. Oh, I love Greek, man. It's just, it's amazing. So thank you, man, for your commitment to the word of God and um, especially uh, tough stuff, Greek uh, language. Um, it's, it's awesome. Um, so I was thinking about, uh, your bio and especially, uh, thinking about your book, the path to being a pastor. And, uh, it was intriguing that, uh, um, that you think that emphasizing aspirations over calling as a man to pursue the office of elders and encouraging readers to make sure they are pastorally gifted before considering the role. I, I, I thought that's, that's, that's neat because I'm right now going through the book of Ephesians and I was teaching from chapter four and uh, the chapter four starts with like uh, he, he's urging the, uh, his readers to, to walk worldly, you know, uh, according to their calling, which is they are called for. So calling became kind of like a big thing. And you thought about aspiration over calling. I was like, okay, that's interesting. I, I want to I want to start there, and then of course we want to talk about your book, your ministry, and all that. But help me to understand why. 
Sure. Well, I start the book there. And um, the basic idea is that uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 3.1 says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So that's an explicit biblical commendation for desiring the work of an elder. Uh, and in the New Testament, it uses the terms elder, overseer, and pastor interchangeably to refer to the same office. There's only one office of spiritual leadership in the local church, uh, but it's given those three different names, which all have different nuances. So Paul, Paul says, if anyone aspires to the office of over, overseer, he desires a noble task. It's a good work. Uh, and that aspiration means you, you desire to do the work, and therefore you desire to measure up to the qualifications and requirements. So Paul goes on, that, that, that one sentence, 1 Timothy 3.1, is at the head of a list of qualifications. That's his introduction to those qualifications. So he's saying, if you want to do this kind of work, here is the kind of godly man you need to be. And the, the, the qualifications are primarily matters of character. Uh, Paul goes on to talk about being above reproach, faithful to a wife, managing one's household well, having self-control, sober-mindedness, these kinds of things. It, they're overwhelmingly matters of character. It also does involve the ability to teach. That's in verse 2. Uh, and also managing one's household well so as to be able to lead and care for God's church. Um, so that structure of aspiring to a work therefore being directed to the qualifications for it and having kind of an objective test that you can measure up to, that's an explicitly biblical paradigm for considering who should serve as a pastor. I'm not saying that's all that scripture has to say about it, um, but that's an explicitly biblical paradigm for understanding how do you think about uh, desiring the, the work of a pastor and the way that people often use calling language, saying I'm called to the ministry, that kind of thing. I, I can agree with a whole lot of what they typically mean by it. It depends. What do you mean? How do you use that language? Um, one point I would make is that scripture nowhere explicitly attaches that language to a desire to serve as a pastor. Um, another observation I'd make about that language is it tends to make a very subjective focus on what do I feel? Uh, what do I think just based on my own desires? And it tends to add a kind of spiritual super stamp to it. Uh, it, it takes it takes saying I desire to do this, and it 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 kind of um, assumes that there's a divine endorsement here. Now I'm not saying God never leads us, uh, you know, personally through His Holy Spirit. I'm not saying God never directs our paths individually, but I think there's a pitfall, there's a danger in saying I'm called to ministry. Uh, when that might sort of bypass those objective qualifications Paul lays out in 1 Timothy. I think another potential danger of that language is it can put a lot of pressure instantly. So I've had, I've had two conversations this week uh, with uh, um, one man who's visiting my church, another who's in the process of joining, both expressing some desire to serve the Lord in full-time ministry. And I think one pitfall of the language of calling is it can make it a sort of all or nothing are you called to ministry or not? Whereas, you know, one thing we see in the New Testament is that um, the office of elder is not restricted to those who do it full-time. Uh, there are elders who can serve the Lord full-time, set, set apart by a church, uh, and there are elders who might also have a different job and, and, and serve the staff in a, in a lay, an, an unpaid capacity. So I think actually talking about simply aspiring to that office is a bit more flexible. 
it, it's a kind of objective mirror that we examine our souls in the light of these qualifications. And it can take some pressure off the conversation. Uh, if you aspire to this work, that's a great thing. Let's figure out how you can do that. And it's actually a separate conversation, whether you'll ever do that for your job or not. I love the way you are ending your statement. You said, uh, um, so if the person says he is, right, if the answer is uh, I am aspire to, then you said, which is, I think is a pastoral thing to do. Well, let's figure it out how to do it. Yeah. So there is room for that. I, I love that. Now, would you say, so help me to understand do you, the idea of character over qualification, right? Um, so if you have a person who got a really, really good um, uh, character, man of God, you observe, your church observed, and this is a person, but simply doesn't have the qualification, will you hire him? Not the unpaid. Where, where would you stand with your understanding? Where would you stand when it comes to hiring? Uh, character or qualification? Yeah, so I think I might just make a slight tweak in, in how you're using those words. I would say that character comprises a large portion of the qualifications for office of, of elder, uh, but that there, there are some competencies as well that are also part of that uh, qualification. So in other words, the qualifications have kind of two parts, character and competence. Character is, is the majority of them. But the competence is also important in the sense that uh, 1 Timothy 3.2 says an overseer must be able to teach. So to be an elder in any capacity, whether paid or unpaid, one has to have a basic ability in teaching the word. Uh, Paul gives us a little bit further detail on that when he says in Titus 1.9 that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that in order to be an elder, a man has to be able to hold down a Sunday morning sermon in the pulpit every week, back to back to back to back to back, to, to have that degree of gifting as a teacher. It might be he's a good small group teacher. It might be he's a good one-to-one -one discipler and Bible teacher. It might be he's great in a Sunday school context, uh, but he might struggle. He might not be the most captivating uh, preacher, you know, preaching to the whole congregation. So I do think there's some flexibility and range in the, the degree of teaching gifts a man can have. But a man could have an extremely godly character and have no character defect that would disqualify him from the work of eldering. But if he really doesn't have any ability or desire to teach God's word, uh, then he shouldn't be an elder because teaching is the fundamental way that the elders lead and shepherd the church. So that's no demerit to him. It just seems God hasn't given him that gift and he should just seek to serve the Lord however he can. And, and there's no, no fault of his that he won't serve as an elder. Um, just a second point I would make is that scripture seems to draw a relationship between uh, setting aside a brother financially for ministry and his teaching gifts. So for instance, uh, Galatians 6, 6, the apostle Paul says, the one who is taught the word should share all good things with the one who teaches. Or in 1 Timothy 5, 17, uh, it's the elders who rule well, who should be given double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And that honor should include financial compensation. 
So I do think it's a it's a matter of prudence. Uh, let's say a church is without a pastor. Um, you know, the pastor has retired or passed away or moved on to another ministry. You know, what should that church consider? They absolutely need to consider his character. Um, but in addition to his character, uh, his competence as a teacher and preacher is one of the primary things they should be evaluating. And especially his faithfulness to God's word. Does he explain it and apply it faithfully? So where do you, so I, I, excellent answer, by the way. So I was thinking about competency and character, but the yeah. qualification that I was thinking was more in a narrow sense, like uh, education, going oh, to seminary, sure. getting sure. a degree, because I had this brother ah, back uh-huh. in New York yep. and in every conversation, he will just uh, say that, uh, Oh, but I did not go to seminary. Oh, but I did not go to Bible I college. See. So I, yeah. that part. And then uh, immigrants who just land mm-hmm. do not become senior pastors of mm-hmm. a, a a predominantly uh, Caucasian church or uh, established church. It just, just doesn't happen for immigrants. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually immigrants end up going to ethnic churches. So New York City is full of uh, ethnic churches Um, and they're small and most of those pastors are driving taxi in the morning and in the evening they are teaching and preaching and and leading and a person who just comes here let's say if he already in his 50s and he was a successful pastor back home wherever he's coming from and now it's the only thing he knew his whole life how to be a pastor so that that person for that person is really really difficult thing if you tell that person like you know you need to go to bible college because if you don't have a college degree if you don't have a seminary degree nobody's gonna give you a pastor job so that kind of thing i was thinking sure how do yeah that's an excellent question and so I, i do think um my short answer would be that Uh, having a seminary degree is no guarantee you'll be a faithful and qualified pastor. And lacking a seminary degree uh, is no guarantee that you won't. In other words, mm-hmm. it's not it's not essential. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's not essential to have a seminary degree in order to be a faithful pastor. I mean, some of the best preachers I know don't Amen. even have sem- seminary degrees, mm-hmm. um, both both living contemporary and uh, historic. Some of my favorite favorite preachers and Christian leaders. So. I think um, I appreciate what you're getting at because often there is just a an expectation on the part of churches. Mm-hmm. And now that might be out of a sense of caution and diligence of, well, this is how you vet people in other professions. Sometimes, sadly, it could be a sense of carnality or pride. If we want to have a certain, uh, an, a pastor with an impressive resume, mm-hmm. you know, sadly, I do think many churches wrongly overlook candidates for sort of fleshly or carnal reasons. Mm-hmm. So I, I agree hundred percent. There are many circumstances in which a brother is faithful, gifted, qualified in a biblical sense. Although a church that adopts kind of worldly practices or standards might overlook him uh, right. due to lack of formal education or that kind of thing. I mean, we our congregation here on Capitol Hill is in a highly educated area. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even still, we have had several full-time pastors on our church's staff who do not have formal theological degrees. Wow. Uh, they're, ju- they're just godly men. One, you know, we had an assistant pastor who didn't even have a college degree. He just, he, uh, he worked in a company with his father. He uh, was a bivocational pastor previously. He has incredible Bible knowledge. He's a wonderful godly man and counselor. And he served our church very faithfully as an assistant pastor. Now he's a senior pastor elsewhere. 
And I think, you know, he has a family to support. He's, it, it just wouldn't make sense for him to go do more formal education at this point. So <laughs> generally speaking, would I encourage someone who aspires to pastor full-time to get a seminary degree? Yes. But I think there are many wrong reasons for churches to kind of hold that up as an absolute requirement. Yeah. Uh, and they could, they could actually be overlooking or neglecting right. gifted men who don't have it. Right. So the cultural shift needs to come from the church, right? Because if church says that, hey, we're going to look at the character of the person and whether the person is aspired to be and, and, and we're not going to give it to this uh, narrative because that's not the narrative in the rest of the world, right? There you don't see pastors uh, going to seminaries and getting degree. Nothing against that. It's just simply they don't have seminaries or they have lack of uh, even uh, um, written word of God. And I hope some of you who are listening to this uh, podcast, if you're a pastor, if you're on a um, search committee and you're looking for a pastor, maybe this is something you need to consider. Um, You heard Bobby, and uh, I think this is something to look into. All right, Bobby. So Give me an over, I think you gave me the overview of the path to being a pastor, but I would like to hear what was the catalyst for you writing this book? I know that you already written other books, but why this book? Yeah, the catalyst was that um, a major element in my role as a pastor here at Capitol Hill Baptist is helping oversee our pastoral internship where we have six men each semester who desire to be pastors and we invest in them very intensively. And I was just reflecting on my own experience, their diverse experiences, um, and thinking about kind of common issues that arise along the way, both, both positively, things that any man can can implement uh, to help grow who desires to become a pastor eventually, but also pitfalls and challenges that many men walk through. Things like how do you candidate at a church when you apply for a role or things like Mm. considering what what would be questions to ask about potentially serving at uh, at a church in an associate type of role, or how do you handle, how do you handle feeling frustrated by a kind of lack of evident ministry opportunities when you desire to serve the Lord more publicly and you seem to be sort of stuck on the shelf. Um, So it was really reflecting on what are some of the common experiences of the men we're training and sending out. And so that was, that was the kind of main desire, main catalyst, just to try to provide a bit of a roadmap. Um, and, and then another catalyst was this issue of calling and trying to kind of reprogram the, the sort of framework and language toward this, this explicitly biblical idea of aspiration. So, so in a way, it's kind of like, what, what are all the main things I would tend to say to each of our interns as we walk through this training process, uh, just kind of distilled into short chapters? So would you say that uh, it's a culmination of your uh, sessions with your pastor interns that eventually became a book? Uh, basically, yes, that's okay. right. I mean, each of the, there are many, many conversations behind each so, of these chapters. So, that's which right. is, yeah, which is even better. So your book is not just theoretical framework or theoretical idea. It's a practically something you've been doing and uh, you have seen uh, the, the fruit or evidence of that or the questions that have uh, led you to maybe modify over the period of time. You've been there for, you said, uh, uh, th- uh, what was that, 13 years? Uh, well, well, let's see. Um, I first came to CHBC about 14 years ago. 14 years um, ago. Yeah, I've been serving, but I, I went away for a, a couple of different theological degrees and came back. Um, okay. 
So I've been serving here for a pa- as a pastor for almost five years now. Okay. Um, but yeah, you're right. This is this is very much grown out of my own experience and the kind of shared experience of walking alongside others. That's awesome, man. I'm shifting the conversation a little bit. Is your church in a dense uh, urban area? If so, yes. what yeah. are the unique? So I want to hear about the unique ministry challenges there in D.C. Sure. Yes, we are in a dense urban area. We are in the middle of Capitol Hill, about five blocks from the Capitol building. The largest employer in our area is the U.S. Congress and all the, the, the staff, all the staff and the, and the people who, you know, the staff who populate committees and work for representatives and work in all the associated things uh, with the Congress. Um, so let's see. I mean, opportunities would be a sort of continual influx of people uh, and especially young people sort of early on in education or a career. Uh, that's certainly an opportunity. Um, another opportunity would be just with, you know, Capitol Hill is very interesting because a lot of people live and work uh, very close by. So we get to have a lot of in-person access to people. You know, it's easy for folks to come in and have a meeting in our church office during the day. Uh, it's easy for members to to meet up over lunch or to have a meal before work or just to be deeply enmeshed in each other's lives. I think it is, there's a natural advantage uh, to proximity. And we encourage members to, to live as close to the church as they reasonably can. And if they're commuting in from a long way out, we actually give away a church a kind of church information card with a map of other like-minded churches that might be nearer to where they are. So we are regularly in the position of recommending people go to a different church because if it's right in their neighborhood, they can more easily invite their non-Christian neighbor. Uh, they can more easily invite uh, a coworker to a special evangelistic talk or something like that. So we experience a lot of the benefits of proximity in a way that even in many American cities, this is, this is an old neighborhood, it's a historic neighborhood, things are pretty close together. Uh, it just enables a kind of face-to-face constant interaction, uh, which really helps thicken up our congregational life. Um, you know, among the challenges, you know, certainly um, there, there are various kinds of diversity that present an opportunity to showcase the gospel. Uh, diversity ethnically, culturally, diversity in terms of education, diversity in terms of people's you know cultural backgrounds, uh, economic status, things like that, and it really does provide an opportunity to showcase how the gospel unifies us uh, despite all kinds of worldly differences that could divide us. And I think by God's grace, we have experienced a lot of that as a church. Now, one of the challenges is that that diversity is costly. Um, we experience many differences from each other in a way where uh, churches in a more homogenous area where people tend to be more similar ethnically or economically or culturally or even politically, um, there, there might be more natural affinity and more things assumed and taken for granted. Uh, so I do think there's a tremendous opportunity to love across lines of difference uh, that mm. commends the gospel. Just, just like Jesus says in John 13, uh, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you mm. have love for one another. Right, And so I do think there is a heightened sense of uh, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you're all one in Christ. There's a, a sort of providential sense in which the diversity of an inner city uh, can shine a spotlight on that. At the same time, uh, it can pose heightened challenges for agreeing with each other <laughs> and right, finding right. finding unity in Christ, right. uh, especially in the midst of a pandemic and everything uh, right. associated with that. And then, you know, we, we also have, you know, just one... I'm sure you experienced this in New York. Um, you know, it is a highly transient area. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so we are constantly in the business of trying to get to know people quickly and deeply, trying to help them kind of connect to the church uh, in a way where they can have a deep and meaningful relationship in the church, even if they might only be here for a year or two. And even trying to help reprogram people's mindset. They might often think, oh, I'm only here for a year or two, so I'm not going to join the church. Well, if you join the church while you're here, you might have a very deep, fruitful time with us. Um, but if you only ever kind of skim the surface of a church because you're only there for a year or two, mm. uh, you're, you're, you're seriously losing out spiritually. And mm. frankly, you're, you're not fulfilling the one another's that the New Testament gives us of mm. what it means to live as part of the body of Christ. So people have certain assumptions when they only think they're somewhere for a short time. And we're often trying to kind of shepherd them out of those to say, no, no, no. What you want to do is plug in quickly, go deep fast. So you can make the most of what may well be a short season. Man, that's so interesting thought again. So, yeah. So yeah, you're right. That's that, that's an interesting thought. Get them plugged, plugged in right away and go deeper fast so the little time you have you get the most out of that that's interesting thank you brother so here's the um uh, the next thing what are what are your practical recommendations for anyone thinking about becoming a pastor sure that's a great question i would say get your book (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, I appreciate the suggestion. Um, <laughs> I do have a little stash that I give away when people ask me this question. Uh, so yeah, I can't, I, can't, I can't deny it. But no, I'd say more, more importantly, read and pray through 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7 and Titus 1, 5 to 9. Yeah. And um, examine your own heart in light of those qualifications. Ask the Lord where you, where you may not be embodying those things yet and pray that you'd grow in those areas. Um, so pray for growth in those character qualifications, pray for opportunities to begin serving God's people, uh, Mm -hmm. in a sense, just begin taking initiative to try to help people grow spiritually. Uh, Mm -hmm. if you're studying the book of Romans and your quiet times in the morning, uh, maybe just see if there's somebody in your church that you could meet up with once a week and study it together and talk about it. Excellent. Um, you know, it certainly make that desire known to the leaders of your church and just ask humbly if there are any ways you might be able to contribute to teaching or leading in an appropriate Mm way. Uh, be patient. Uh, You know, there might be many men on the bench and maybe not quite room for you yet, but, but be patient, be persistent. Um, and I would say, uh, seek, seek feedback on ways you can grow into the character of a pastor. Um, yeah. And I, I would certainly, uh, those, those would be some beginning steps. Yes. Um, once you get practical. me started, I'm going to tell you the whole book, so I better stop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, uh, still, uh, if you're listening and if you're someone, uh, who is, uh, desiring to be a pastor and, uh, I think that's, that's amazing, uh, that we have a resource right here, um, path to being a pastor get the book, even if it's just online book, read through and uh, see what the Lord is doing uh, in your life through that uh, teaching. So uh, for Bobby, here's my next question. You have another forthcoming book, brother, a biblical reasoning. Uh, tell me some more about that. So while the person is uh, looking up and trying to find this, the path to being a pastor, they can also look for biblical reasoning. Sure. So go ahead, tell me something sure. about it. 
Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. That's a book coming out in June, uh, so a few a few months from now. I co-wrote it with a good friend of mine named Tyler Whitman. We it was really about 50-50. We we each wrote half the book and we revised each other's chapters and, and that sort of thing. Um, so Tyler is a professor of systematic theology at New Orleans Baptist Seminary. We're we're long-term friends and we've been kind of theological dialogue partners for a long time. Our shared burden in the book is to try to show basically that systematic theology and biblical exegesis are much closer friends than many people give them credit for. So repeat sometimes that again. Let's say it again, brother. Systematic theology mm-hmm. and biblical exegesis, the okay. interpretation of scripture, right. are much closer friends mm-hmm. than many people give them credit for. Mm. Sometimes people think of systematic theology as just a bunch of abstractions, mm-hmm. a bunch of floaty ideas. It kind of takes you away from the text into speculation. Um, and that, you know, to do right biblical exegesis, you need to sort of keep your mind pure and, and clear and, and free from theological pre-commitments. And mm-hmm. what, we're tr- what we're trying to show is that when you penetrate into the depth of what Scripture teaches— Uh, about the triune God, about how God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When you penetrate into the depth of what Scripture teaches about the person of Christ, uh, that he is God and man in one person, uh, these actually give you lenses. There There are theological concepts you can discern in Scripture that then give you lenses for more faithfully reading scripture. So it becomes a positive feedback loop, a a virtuous cycle of gaining understanding of scripture's theological vision in some very specific ways that actually give you tools for interpreting difficult texts. So we, we sort of walk through scripture and basically distill theological principles that we then use as exegetical rules to say, if this is what scripture teaches about who God is, how do we rightly read scripture in light of that? So it's from scripture and then back into scripture. There's an arrow from reading scripture to find out uh, who God is in his triune nature. And then that sends us better informed back into scripture. So it is a little bit of an academic book. It's sort of a seminary textbook level type of book. Um, uh, so it is a little bit of a higher level reading. But yeah, our goal is to say, this is who God shows himself to be in scripture. And the, the more we learn about who he is, uh, the better readers of scripture will become. Um, so I think I want to move to the next question. This is a little different, but still it's you. It's about your uh, writing. Uh, so recently you wrote uh, about being a man of God on Desiring God, right? So what do you uh-huh. mean? What do you believe that means? Yeah, fundamentally, it would be a man whose heart is aligned with what God loves, a man who loves God above all things and Mm -hmm. loves uh, other people rightly because he loves God rightly and who loves the created world rightly because he loves God rightly. Um, You know, I, I in that article, I'm trying to kind of implant an ambition. Uh, and, and Desiring God asked me to write specifically to men. So, of course, this applies to women as well, but there, there are some male-specific exhortations in there. Uh, I'm, I, you know, men are ambitious for many things, ambitious to get married or ambitious to earn a lot of money or ambitious to make a name for themselves in their career. I, I'm trying to hold up godliness as an ambition worth cultivating. Uh, Paul says it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So I'm trying to instill godliness as an ambition. In a sense, a man of God is a man who's ambitious to be godly. 
You could put it like that. So that's like really powerful topic itself. That's like a huge ministry by yourself. Uh, uh, being a man, I have like, that's one of my commitment to my church uh, and any church. I think uh, men needs to be godly men. And uh, I think they need to be wonderful husband uh, and uh, godly fathers to their children. I believe uh, Satan is after families. I think uh, that's where he, he uh, does the most damage. Therefore, we have uh, such a high rate of divorce, all kind of uh, crazy stuff. Um, uh, pregnancy, we talk about, you know, um, the pregnancy, uh, you know, teen pregnancy and all that, because uh, that also translates like what, and I'm talking about Christian households, right? Uh -huh. So you got to teach your boys, like be a gentleman. Uh, if you teach them well, they will, because they contribute into that pregnancy, but why the shame and all of that goes to the lady? Uh, young person. So there's a lot of that, that I connect back to um, this manhood that even pastors, you know, uh, in the last two, three years, I've seen more pastors, wonderful, godly men that I actually thought were the, the best. And then they fell morally. Mm -hmm. So, so this is one of those things close to my heart and uh, appreciate your uh, for, part on that too. So I like to close with the uh, um, a joke. So I'm not the one going to tell the joke. Since you are the guest, you got to tell the joke. So tell me a joke, Bobby. Oh boy. Uh, give me just a moment. Oh, I'm only having kids joke. My kids jokes come to mind, but they're pretty lame. Yeah. Go for that. Mine okay, fine. Here we go. Here's the lame joke courtesy of my little kids. Um, if April showers bring May flowers, what do May flowers bring? What? pilgrims oh yes of course <laughs> it was right there yes that's perfect good job you see it's thank, wonderful thank you to my yeah, kids it's right there yes <laughs> oh man that's awesome uh thank you so much for coming on the show bobby it was great to have you and uh, and thank you to all our listeners. If you appreciate this podcast, please be sure to leave an honest review wherever you listen to your podcast. Tune in next week for more honest discussions from diverse voices. You've been listening to Our Urban Voices with Dr. Alphonse Javed, which presents Christian narratives through diverse voices that impact urban ministry. Please check back for new episodes every week.